Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. I return this morning to a metaphor that I've used often, a metaphor of the season. Your life will pass like the seasons of the year. Each season will be roughly a period of time between 20 to 25 years each if you attain the average life expectancy. First, there is spring. Life is new and young. Everything is just beginning and your life calls you forward. You plant the seeds that in time will grow and bloom and eventually be harvested. Then comes the summer. The days are long and warm. You have time to work, to love, to play. Everything is growing, sometimes productively, sometimes in a weedy, tangled mess. You fight the floods and the drought and the good times and the bad, but the weather is warm and it's good. The third season of your life is autumn. The great time of harvest in your 40s, your 50s, Stretching into your 60s, you begin to reap what you have sown and acquire the metallic age. Silver in your hair. Gold in your teeth. Lead in your butt. Your career and your ideas about life reach maturity. Finally, there is Winter, the last 20 or 25 or so years of life, there are still some crops to harvest and there are still some seeds to plant. Though not in the sprawling farm of life, you cultivate maybe in little flower pots and hanging baskets, your days are much shorter. You cannot stop this movement. You cannot change the changing of the seasons or the turning of the calendar or the passing of the decades. Consequently, the question is not, how can I stop time or slow down time? The question is, what am I doing with the time that I have left? No matter which season of life that you are in. As Mark Twain said, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than by the things you did. He's probably right. I picked up the subject of simplicity a few weeks ago. Get still. Get quiet. In silence, let God speak so that you might find clarity and purpose. That clarity is always the result of jettisoning what you do not need. By casting off the weights that so easily entangle us, if I might quote the writer of Hebrews. Then write to those entanglements I have gone. Simplify your spirituality. Because genuinely, spirituality is all about love. Loving God and loving neighbor. Everything else is commentary. 
Simplify your stuff because you've got enough. You've got too much. And if your possessions begin to possess you, it's time for a yard sale. A surrendering of the anxiety caused by managing so much. And today, simplify the seasons. I'm talking about time today. Not your daily schedule, per se. Not your social or your work calendar. I'll get to that. I'm speaking of the overall arc of your short but beautiful life that you have been blessed with. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God, says the psalmist. God, you have created this eternal universe. Yet within this never-ending circle of infinity, we find that we are the opposite. We pass like breath, like a fog evaporating at sunrise. Our existence fades like shallow-rooted grass in the afternoon heat. We return to the dust from which we came just about as quickly as we arrive. The child heard that in church one Sunday He went home and he looked under his bed and there was a pile of dust under his bed. And he said to his mother, there's someone living under my bed, but I I can't tell if they're going or coming. We're all going. I mean, one day it is spring and we look down at our watch to see the time and when we look back up, the snow is falling. It is so fast. Teach us to number our days. They are so short that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This is Dr. Elia Dalio. She is a Franciscan sister who teaches at Villanova. She is simultaneously a Catholic nun, a theologian, a college professor, a tiny spry who reminds me of a geriatric Tinkerbell, and she holds advanced degrees in biology, theology, pharmacology, and quantum physics. She talks about the encyclopedia of cosmic life. And I'll summarize it. It's the best I can do with quantum theory. This will blow your mind. Imagine a 30-volume encyclopedia set. 30 books. Each single book has 500 pages. Each page contains the record of a million years going back to the birth of the universe. 30 volume set. 500 pages. Each page a million years. Pick up the 30th volume, the last volume. Turn to the 500th page. Look at the last two words. Human beings. And that is all the space we have occupied so far in the history of the universe. Let that roll over you just a second. Teach us to number our days. They are so short. We are so small. The tragedy of life is not that we have so little time and then we die. Everything dies. The tragedy of life is having so little time and not actually live. That's the tragedy. For a few minutes this morning and in the spirit of this series of talks, 
I'm going to simplify the decades of our life from eight or nine down to the seasons of our life to four and then to the halves of life too. Let's speak of life like it's a football game since it is Super Bowl Sunday. Two halves of life. The first half, the second half. And it is in the second half of life where the game is won or lost. Leaning into the sage wisdom of Father Richard Rohr, Dr. James Hollis, we are all born into the first half of life. It's where we all start. And in the first half of life, we are all searching for purpose, for vocation, for identity. Who am I? What will I do with my life? We are striving. We are trying. We are building something. We are working on our edifice, our image, the container of life. We seek accomplishment. We seek our people, our place. We have much to prove. You ever notice how young people want to prove something? We seem to want to show our mettle, show that we are deserving of a few accolades, a few attaboys, or you go girl. We must demonstrate to ourselves, to our parents, to our peers, to our culture, for good or for bad, that we are worthy. In the first half of life, all of this is necessary. It's proper, it is good to build well. It is natural and expected to feel the sense of expectation. It is right to carve out an identity, to defend, to assert, to protect, to be concerned with the outer life. The first half of life is all about this. And it's unavoidable. And then comes the second half of life. It's no longer just about your career or your ego or what you can accomplish. It's not about striving or building this impressive outer life. Now it is about substance and the depth of your inner life. Now it's about the content of my soul, not just this container around my soul. Now accolades and awards mean less. I mean, they're nice. But I've never met anyone after age 40 who gets an award and it teaches them anything. Now, we have less to prove. Now, meaning means more. We learn we are not human doings. We are human beings. You aren't as concerned with what people think. Thanks be to God for that. How the world judges you. How you may not be as special as you thought you were. You have turned to what really matters. And Carl Jung, who coined this whole idea of first and second half living, sums it up thusly. He says, quote, The first half of life is devoted to all that is outward, to the ego. The second half of life is about going inward and letting go of your pride. However, not everyone gets to the second half of life. They don't die young. They just don't adjust. They can't seem to make adjustments to the reality on the field. They stay bound to their striving and their hustling and their fragile egos. They never find depth of spirit. They never work on their souls. They never develop internally. They never turn all that outward energy to the things that are eternal. So they're old enough now to be sage to be a saint. They should have acquired true wisdom by now, but they are just about as shallow as a teenager or a spoiled child. 
I mean, have you met the high school quarterback who at 55 still thinks he can play? You know this guy. You've worked with this guy. You might live with this guy. I mean, he's still a jock, strolling the halls of his high school, slaying the ladies, adored by his posse and his teammates. He might as well as still be wearing his letterman jacket, but he can't fit into it. He's fat and he's bald. He's got gout. But by God, he is still the man. Or wants to be. Now, there's nothing wrong with being the star on the field if you're 17 or 27. But you can't live like that forever. You can't even live like that for a few decades. I mean, you can. But what a pitiful, short-sighted, small person you become if you're still trying to be that when that time has passed. Here's a concrete example for you. A friend of mine has a child who is very ill. The child has a rare disease. It is treatable, but of course it is expensive. And insurance being what it is in the 21st century, the U.S. of A, you just don't get what you pay for sometimes, do you? So the usual GoFundMe page went up, and isn't it a shame that we have to group source paying for our health care? But the web page went up asking friends and family and neighbors and strangers for the dollars necessary to heal his child. My friend went to his mother. She is a successful, very successful businesswoman. And he asked her to share her grandchild's fundraiser with all her friends on social media, and by email, because she knows so many people. Do you know what this woman said? I can't do that. What would everyone think of me if my family is out there begging for money? That is first half of life thinking. My image, my reputation, how I am perceived by others, sensitivity to, or I should say, enslavement to what others might say or do. Here is a woman who is losing at the game of life. Losing. A person so addicted to the carrots and sticks of her social environment, she can't even show compassion to her grandchild. Here is nothing but a facade, a person who makes six figures and with more than six decades of existence, but may not have any true life left in her soul. She certainly hasn't gained a heart of wisdom. What a feckless, shallow waste of one's time that public impression on Facebook is more important than healing her own flesh and blood. Can I get an amen? It's a dramatic example, but it crystallizes the point. You will not live a healthy life. You will not gain wisdom. You will not expand your soul or strengthen your inner person. You will not grow into the beautiful person God created you to be if you do not cross over into that second half of life. You had the first half. 
good for you. You needed all of that. But now you are ready to meet the game where it will actually be won. Now is the time to finish like a champion. Not because you're going to accomplish some great feat or make a name for yourself. But because now you are willing to integrate all of those experiences. Your joys and your sorrows. Your blessings and your tragedies. Your victories and your defeats, and let them sharpen your vision and make wise your heart. So, how do we do this? Well, I can give it to you in a sentence, and then in a few words, and then in a single word. If you want to adjust at halftime, it is this. Number one, stop resisting all that has hurt you, and let those hurts do the work of changing you. Or, in three words, accept your sufferings. Or this one big, bad, ugly word. Surrender. What keeps the 55-year-old former quarterback dreaming of Friday Night Lights? He won't face the sorrow of his aging. He won't grieve the loss of what once was. What keeps that grandmother so image conscious, so enslaved to the perceptions of others? Because somewhere within her there is a wound, a deep, bleeding, ulcerated trauma that she has never acknowledged or done business with. And those losses, those wounds, those places of our deepest suffering, those are the same places that will liberate us and enliven us and change us if, and it's a big if, if we will allow them to. Richard Rohr calls this necessary suffering. We don't go looking for it. It will find you. We aren't sadistic little minions just begging God to inflict some hardship on us so that we can learn and grow and rise above our circumstances. That is not spirituality. That is insanity. Life's troubles will find you. That is the nature of life in all of its variegated colors and manners. No human escapes suffering. But not every human becomes a good steward of that suffering and becomes willing to let it do its redemptive work. I've said often that the most beautiful people that I have known in my life are those who have been wounded deeply. Sometimes by themselves. But they can still laugh. They still have light in their eyes. They still have hope. They are still alive. And the paradox is, the ugliest people that I have met in my life have been deeply wounded. But they have calcified. They are bitter. They are angry. And any time... The suggestion is made to do some business with their hurts. They just double down on the resentment. We're all going to hurt. We're all going to get pulverized. There ain't none of us getting off this planet alive. What kind of steward of those sufferings will you be? As Viktor Frankl said, this is the last of human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. We have a word in English for this process of facing our pain. We call it grief. When someone is grieving, 
They are underneath the Latin word gravis. They are underneath the weight. That's where we get our English word gravity. It's really interesting to me. Gravity is actually what makes you a human being. Did you know that? I'll finish where I started today, a bit of a science lesson. This one not from Dr. Sister Dahlia, but from NASA. More than 50 years, for more than 50 years now, NASA has been studying the effects of weightlessness on human beings. Zero gravity. They have learned that without gravity, even significantly reduced gravity, humans become spatially disoriented. We lose our eye-hand coordination. We lose our balance. The body sees a reduction in its ability to absorb oxygen. Heart rates become unstable. Blood pressure rises. Our extremities retain fluid. Bone density begins to fall immediately. 2% every month that a person experiences weightlessness. And muscle mass collapses 25% in two weeks. Those who return from space have higher rates of kidney stones, heart disease, vision loss, stroke, and autoimmune disorders. So if you're vying for a spot on the ship to be on that first flight to Mars, I'm just letting you know what you're getting into. Gravity makes us human. It makes us strong. It gives us grounding. Gravity gives us Our world, without it, the earth would look like the moon. The atmosphere would escape. Water would leak immediately into space. Anything of any structure would collapse into a vacuum. And eventually, the inner core of this planet would burst. Gravity, gravis, grounding the heavy things. They might weigh you down, but at the same time, they will fortify you and keep your feet on the ground. That's what our sufferings can do. If we allow them to. We find that Hemingway was correct. The world breaks everyone. Those that will not break, it kills. But afterward, many are strong at their broken place. It's simple. It ain't easy. It ain't easy. Will you allow your deepest wounds to do the best work in the season of life that you find yourself in?